It was nine o'clock on a sparkling Saturday morning in October. The squirrels had apparently retired for a mid-morning siesta, and Wes arose stiffly from his position beneath a towering shagbark hickory. An orange sun was climbing the eastern sky rapidly and drenching the dripping woods with an unseasonable warmth. Wes leaned his rifle against the tree and unbuttoned his jacket. He felt a little irked at having missed the squirrel. He had seen four or five, but that had been his only good shot, the one that came slithering down the tree directly in front of him. At the shot, the squirrel had jumped from the side of the tree, and for a minute, Wes thought that it was hit. Then he heard the squirrel scamper off among the dead leaves. Lightning Recap in Cormac McCarthy's Wake for Susan, a young man grieves for the life and death of a woman he never knew and for all the lives and deaths of all the people he never knew. You, 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 I bet you've got a little time. Yeah, I, I, I bet you've got a little podcast. Well, we actually have the podcast because <laughs> this that is, that is a point. <laughs> this is, in fact, short story, short podcast. I am Christopher J. Garcia here today with Christy L. Baxter. Yes, and it, it's summer. Finally, we have a day where the uh, weather is going to hit 80. There are people wearing tank tops. Probably fishnet stockings, maybe an orange vest. Uh, Pride is over today. And today, I think we should have read a story. What story should we have read? And probably did. Uh, we probably, if we did our homework, like good little students, read Cormac McCarthy's Wake for Susan. And guess what? I did read it. Um, I did too. Of course, Cormac McCarthy died last week at the age of, wasn't he dead 10 years ago? Um, <laughs> yeah. Oh, it's sad, but true. Yes. Yeah. And this is one of his very early stories. I think it was 1958. And it is a remarkably beautifully written story of deep, an intense meaning and maybe some stuff happens. Hmm. It almost, almost has a little hint, an aspect of magical realism to it. If you look at it from the framework of maybe some stuff happens, you can choose not to though. It's almost a choose your own adventure kind of thing. You can choose not to look at it from the maybe some stuff happens and then it doesn't have any sort of magical realism to it. <laughs> you can do that about a lot of stories, though. Um. Yeah, that's true. But this one, this one is very, it's, I, I think, one of the most well suited to the choose your own adventure uh, style of reading. Yes. And we are presented with, it's mostly a character study of Wes. And uh, I'm not 100% sure when it took place because it should be in 1834, um, as it states a couple of times throughout the story. Uh, and by the way, my favorite moment in here that really sets it forth 
is uh, she was blue-eyed and yellow-haired, soft and bright in her homespun dress, parentheses. 1834 was a year one could remember, not like 1215 or, it says of, but it's or, or 1066, but a real year. This, this idea that years that are particularly dark have a unreal standing. It's like they gain that patina of through time. And 1834 was one that he could actually remember experiencing. It's going to be like in 40 years when people say 2020 uh, or mm-hmm. now 20, was it 2016 when Prince and David Bowie died, uh, sending us off into the dark realm. And Carrie Fisher. do not hurt me like that mr garcia excuse me born on my birthday we're both october 21st babies so there you go you're not allowed to to disparage by pretending not to know who she is she is the princess she was great in star trek i really enjoyed her in star um Ladies and gentlemen, uh, this is unfortunately my last episode of the podcast. (laughs) It had to happen sooner or later. But uh, (laughs) what McCarthy does here, though, is he creates a sensation more than anything in this of time, place, and oddly enough, I think where he, he slips a little bit is he gives us the emotional background of a character, but he doesn't necessarily give, give us their moment. It's as if we are looking at a timeline of a character. We just can't really see where they are at that exact moment. Yeah, there's something about Wes. He's kept rather distanced from us um this is it's it's so weird how we're able to get inside his head in order to see this sort of constructed life with susan but yet we're not able to really get to know wes and so while we're able to get very very close to this idea that he has, we're not able to see anything else about him. It's almost like being able to look into the eyes of somebody, but the whole entire rest of them is shrouded. Exactly. And I think that is, that's difficult to do, honestly. Oh, certainly. Uh, one, I would like to point out one thing I think that Cormac McCarthy used to great effect here uh, is something that it is, it's, frowned upon in early writing and as something that I think is definitely in more advanced writing you can use as a tool but it's one of those things that you have to learn the rule and you have to learn to avoid it before you can use it and break the rule in order to strengthen your writing you have to do it knowingly though and that's filtering and cueing that's anytime you have like third person and you have them you know they feel something they see something they hear something they do anything through the senses Instead of doing that, when you have them do more directly, you know, um, instead of saying, you know, she tasted salt, when you have it be, uh, you have the words 
more along the lines of a, a direct sensation, like the salt melted on her tongue. That induces more closeness to the character. I did a quick little search uh, in the text and I found he felt three times in the text. That's a surprising amount for such a short piece. And that really tells me that we're, we're getting that cueing filtering uh, a little bit more than we would because McCarthy's probably doing it intentionally to hold us at a distance from Wes. Mm -hmm. And when, when we see him, I, I kind of want to say reminiscing, but it's probably pseudo hemi semi demi projecting um, on uh, Susan as the person. Like there's there's great moments that you know on their own uh, prove that this is a uh, manic pixie dream girl. Um, <laughs> uh, had she been superstitious, she might have insisted that some kind of fairy folk had washed the tomatoes that she left on the sideboard. Uh, it's like the little things like that that we know he didn't know. And he's sort of building and constructing that sort of figure in the same way that he constructed Wes for us without a center. And that is, there's a remarkable sort of back and forth there, which, and a note here that McCarthy does very well here. And I haven't read his novels to be able enough to figure out if he does this a lot is he varies paragraph length, not necessarily to make the short ones have big impact, but to make the longer paragraphs seem as if they are making the motion for the story. And a lot of authors use the short ones to either hit you with a single point or to move things along real fast. Here, he wants you to slow down with the big stuff so that when the small stuff comes, it's just a moment, it's an instance. That feels, uh, the way you describe that feels very, I don't want to say McCarthyism, uh, McCarthyite, McCarthyish, something like that. Uh, sometimes I have to accept that I'm never going to be able to find a word that works for something, uh, so I just can't make it up. Yeah, there's a sense uh, throughout this that there's this, this love of the past uh, this this sort of nostalgia for for something that never was um and it's really it's really beautifully wrought on the page which it really truly has to be i mean i think when you set out to write something like this you're you're automatically setting the bar for yourself very high because mm -hmm. in order to describe something that would wrench someone as hard as this completely false thing wrenches Wes you truly have to describe something wrenching you have to describe something so beautiful that it could hurt somebody even though it's fake it it's non-existent I mean maybe yes somebody like this existed somewhere but that's all a lot of vague nothing maybe somebody somewhere he never knew Susan for all we know there is no Susan and so if you look at it from that sort of a cynical point of view it's it's all very silly and so McCarthy has to suck in even the, the cynics who would look at it that way so he really has to 
make every single word shine and sparkle in order to make this pretend world the most beautiful it can be. The thing I, I instantly noticed is that about a third of the story is written in the subjunctive. And it is, a, it is, of course, the aspect of language used for speculation. Uh, yeah. He said, having read one book about literary theory. Um, <laughs> well, that's all you need. Yeah, pretty much. Um, I think it was called literary theory. Uh, but, uh, <laughs> literary theory for dummies? Yes. And when he <laughs> out of it, it's interesting. It's, it's very much when he is writing in the subjunctive, everything is more concrete. It's when he gets out of it that things become less concrete. There's that sort of rapid fire five one sentence paragraphs back to back, you know, at the door, her kiss would be full of meaning and he would, it says Tumblr, but it's <laughs> out into the sharp night air and run most of the way home. The stars promised they would be back again tomorrow night. Susan would stand at the door until he was out of sight, breathing very quietly and imagining there still. Then she would carry the lamp into a room and look at herself to see what there was about her that made him think she was such a delicate piece of china. Undressing quickly in the cold room, she would tumble, this time spelled right, into bed. She would see him again tomorrow. The stars came back if their luster paled. It was because that part of her beauty was no longer there to receive them. In his eyes, they swam blurred and distorted in a salt sea. The year was, thir was 1834 and it was October. But then he becomes concrete. How had she died? The mute stone left no testimony. There were so many ways. Again, in the speculation, he can be incredibly specific, but in the moment, it is a generalization. It is the broad strokes of a moment. And the fact that he didn't know how she died because all he has of her is what's on that stone is the most telling part of this entire story. Yeah, he just has, has words carved into a stone, which is, you know, incredibly, forgive the pun, concrete. Um, I'm sorry. When one of them comes into my head and I recognize it, I, my brain shuts down and I can't think of anything else. So I can't get a substitute and I pretty much have no, no choice. Um, so I apologize, but... <laughs> <laughs> it's it's funny that the thing he has about her is a very solid thing and a very certain thing but that's it everything else is gossamer and spider webs and there's no holding on to it but he still manages to to spin it into almost whole cloth mm -hmm. and i love there are moments of minimalism here particularly at the very very ending that feel very much they're in that realm of not actually it's very much like chuck Paholnik without the uh talking sphincters but um it's <laughs> that uh that sense of there's a very much a stripped down area of this story but at the same time when he is again dealing with all of the things that are in the subjunctive <laughs> he's not becoming quite a maximalist he's not becoming a guide de maupassant but he's definitely being more descriptive. It's letting or, loose a little bit. Yeah, perhaps prescriptive. <laughs> Maybe. 
Yeah, I feel like he's kind of, I th- there's a certain sense of not relief, but release um, in the end, not just in Wes, but also you can, you can sense it just a little bit in the author. I don't want to be presumptive at all, but I think there is a sense there um, in, in the prose of a, a looseness that comes, like a, a loosening of, of the limbs after stretching out. Yeah, I think I think this is a story that rewards a reader who really wants to understand the idea of grieving for something you never had. Yes, yes, absolutely. And you know uh, that idea of where do where do the memories of things that never happened live and how do we experience them? And here, Wes, to Wes, it seems that they are as real as things that actually happened to him, which probably says a lot about Wes's life. It really does. It says a lot about it. And um, it's, it's kind of bittersweet in a way, to me at least. I think bittersweet is the exact correct flavor for this story and Mm -hmm. it's i wouldn't go so far to say it's goth i'd say it's emo yeah it's a bit emo it's a bit emo it's got it's got a little a little lock of black hair running in front of its eye and any second now it's gonna toss its head and that black hair is gonna fling itself into the sky uh got anything else in this one there christy uh one thing uh just a random little bit like you said you you had a hard time placing it in time i have an even harder time because there's that mention of uh a muzzle loaders said uh Mm -hmm. perhaps it had been fired only 30 or 40 years ago uh talking about a, a gun the old muzzle loaders were used in this part of the country until fairly recently he knew we had a neighbor across the way that he until fairly recently um would shoot a muzzle loader on his property even though not supposed to shoot guns on in this township except on like gun gun clubs and stuff um it's it's loud uh there's a a nice lengthy time in between like shots so that you have enough time to relax before or the next shot and forget that the last one happened but so that really threw me off because i i was like i have no idea when this might be then because the last time a muzzle loader was shot around here was uh about two years ago <laughs> before actually, that guy's house was foreclosed <laughs> uh, there's actually a single word that really kind of threw me for a loop and it's the use of the word siesta like would in the 1830s siesta have ever been used by anyone outside of Spain? And I don't think it would have. That's a good question. Yeah. And we don't, do we get us enough of a sense of place? I can't think of where this would have been set. Did you get any idea? Right in the first paragraph, it was nine o'clock on a sparkling Saturday afternoon in October. The squirrels had apparently retired for a mid-morning siesta. Oh, no. No, I meant like a sense of place as in like, where was it actually set? Well, his name is Wes and Susan. uh, I mean, I know that I wasn't speculating that it was set in Mexico. (laughs) I was just saying, was it maybe set anywhere where there might have been 
anyone. I don't know. Yeah, I don't think so. I think I think it sounds like it's I want to say it's supposed to be in in either England or Scotland or somewhere like that cuz really have, Well, you have the O don't go and the O is just O. Not O. Oh, oh, oh. No, just one. Oh, and the thing about the fairies or the little people, that's a very, um, I, did, I never really thought about the fact, but that is a very like UK, you know, hmm, never really occurred to me at being him being an American author that he would go in that direction. Okay. I, it it just could be an anachronism, but, but at the same time, like 1834, you say like you don't understand where any Spanish would come. Catherine of Aragon was Spanish. And she married Henry VIII in what, like 1509? Well, yeah, but to be fair, she was Spanish, not like real Spanish from Mexico. Um, but Span Siesta is Spanish. Yes. <laughs> <laughs> they take siestas in Spain, where Spanish originally came from, right? Uh, I'm pretty sure it came from Italy, but uh, I, think... <laughs> I thought it was Australia all along. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, these things happen. Yeah, I like this story a lot. I think me too. I think it is a kind of story we don't see as much today, largely because authors want to be more concrete with their characters because readers want concrete characters, and here this sort of gossamer character of Susan and this almost equally gossamer character of Wes uh, really are just very different from what we would see today. Yeah, I would like to see more gossamer characters. I feel like the world needs them. Um, the world needs a little bit more mystery, I think, these days. Yes, more mystery. Because now they're having UFO disclosure, another mystery gone. Next, it'll be ghosts. Science. Next it'll be ghosts, and then and then we'll know all know about the the vampires and the uh, the perkety snuts and and all the secrets will be revealed. We can only hope that day never comes. <laughs> I know, I know. I pray every day. I don't, but I try. Um, hey, 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 ah, hey, Christy. <laughs> yeah. What are we going to read next week? Next week, we are going to read Rappaccini's Daughter uh, by, hang on a second, and I'll tell you, because I only have the link in here, and I got to go to the link, and oh, what do you know? It doesn't say in the PDF. Who's it by, Chris? Nathaniel Hawthorne. Thank you. I just yes. have the link in the calendar event, but I didn't know who it was by. My fault. Sorry. One of the foundational stories in the history of science fiction and a, a classic that uh, I like. Oh, it's only foundational and a classic. Christy can be forgiven for not knowing the author. <laughs> hey, I guess what? We've already covered it. So, uh, yeah. <laughs> and, oh, uh, you should come over to uh, Old Timey Crimey if you like listening to Chris and I jibber jabber on about stuff and things because Chris was a guest. And we talked about a murder most foul. 
And I told him all about a doctor and his wife and the patient who uh, was uh, maybe murdered in his office. Mm-hmm. And feral humans. So uh... <laughs> Feral humans. Oh, my Lord. And a dictograph. <laughs> That's right. Yes. Oh, it was fun. It was a lot of fun. And it's available now wherever podcasts are available. And you know what? Christopher J. Garcia, you need to do some promo. Book. Flog it right now. Come on. Bam. I'm never good at flogging things when I'm commanded. Um, but uh, yeah, I've got my book coming out. Uh, if you're a UK listener or just want to pay the extra fees to get it off of Amazon UK, uh, Food and Crime comes out July 29th in the UK, October 7th or September 30th in the US, available for pre-order today. Uh, it's 222 pages. If you read it on Kindle, 224. If you get it in actual paper, paper cover, paper hardback version uh, of stories about food, crime, uh, sadness, anger, theft. There's considerable cheese content. Uh, just, it's there. There's even a subset of the index that is just cheeses. Which, honestly, I spent more time doing that than writing the main text. Uh, <laughs> As you should. And make sure you put those links in the show notes, sir. You know, maybe I will, but you told me so, so hmm. <laughs> <laughs> I am like even doing this on air, which you edit this, so you could just edit that out. Um, but I'm trying. I'm trying to make you do the thing that you don't want to do. That's right. Oh, I, good. I can't help if chat GPT doesn't do it. <laughs> <laughs> yes. Well, on that note, this has been Short Story. Short podcast. Ah, phone.